Well, our staff here at TCC spends a lot of time together. Part of that is just the nature of working together in an office all week, an office, mind you, that has no walls. So we're all in one open room like this. The other part of spending time together is we actually enjoy being around one another. It's like hanging out with friends. Just last night, our staff and spouses and children all got together for a pool party. And one of the things that happens when you spend a lot of time around the same group of people, and this, this is true of your coworkers or your family or your group of friends, is when you hang out with a group of people for a period of time, you kind of form these little inside jokes. You form these inside jokes. As an example, if anyone on our staff mentions Trout Creek Bible Camp, our staff just kind of starts to giggle because we know there's going to be a really good story that follows Trout Creek Bible Camp. Or I could tell you about our staff retreat last past year at the lake when Adam and I tried to reenact that classic scene from Free Willy where Willie jumps over the rock wall and Jesse reaches his hand up. I'll let you imagine who was who in that scenario. And you kind of giggle because you can imagine it, but unless you were there, you don't fully understand it, and that's because it's sort of an inside joke. No matter how well I tell the story, it will never be as funny to you. Inside jokes just don't fully make sense unless you're on the inside. Michael Scott says this about inside jokes. He says, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. (laughs) Maybe you and your roommates have an inside joke, or you and your spouse, or you and your coworkers. And every once in a while, you hear a phrase, you'll see something, and it'll make you laugh, but everyone around you is not laughing because they're not in on the joke. Inside jokes are hilarious if you are in on the joke. But if you aren't on the inside, inside jokes are dumb, and they don't make any sense. Here's why I tell you this. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is much like an inside joke. It will only make sense to those of you who are on the inside. In other words, for those of you who are in the Christian faith, if you're part of the church, it will only make sense if you are a follower of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you're watching at home this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus, then you are essentially off the hook today because this isn't really for you. That's great news, right? You don't have to really pay attention. I hope you do, but you're off the hook in some sense. Today, what Jesus is going to talk about is specifically focused on his followers. And just like an inside joke only makes sense if you're on the inside, today is only going to make sense if you're on the inside of Christianity. If you're not, if you're on the outside of Christianity, today, what I'm going to say is probably going to seem weird or uptight or stuffy. Today, we're going to talk about judging one another. Judging one another. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're just going to cover the first six verses as we work our way through the text slowly, trying to explain what Jesus meant when he gave this sermon the first time. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, these words will be on the screen. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, stop there for a second. This is probably one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible, and most people, when they quote it, don't even realize it's part of the Bible. This is just a cultural phrase we use. People will question us, say something about us, make speculation about us, and we will say what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. So let me give you some real examples. Somebody will say, Justin, you hunt? How could you kill an innocent animal? And I would say, don't judge me. It's my life. Don't judge me. Someone would say, Justin, you watch The Bachelor? And I'd say, don't judge me. It's my life. (laughs) Justin, you listen to Justin Bieber? Don't judge me, okay? This is my life. Don't judge me is a common sentiment of our day, a sentiment that I think uh, makes its way back and is connected to uh, the 1996 hit by Tupac, Only God Can Judge Me. I think that's where this kind of stems from. The point is, most people read verse 1 of chapter 7, and they go, see there, we shouldn't judge anyone ever. 
So can't we just mind our own business? Can't everyone just get along, put those coexist bumper stickers on our car and just move on? And that would be great if that's what Jesus meant. If that's what Jesus meant, then we could just pray and go eat donuts for the next hour, except for the fact that Jesus doesn't mean that. And you may say, well, Justin, it seems pretty clear in verse one. How do you know that he doesn't mean that? Well, all you have to do is just keep reading a little bit in the sermon to see where Jesus talks about judging the fruit of other people's lives. We also know that Jesus can't possibly mean that we shouldn't hold others accountable to sin. Go read Matthew 18 for more words on what Jesus says about how to confront someone when they're in sin. Additionally, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that it is our right and responsibility to hold our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. We are to judge them rightly. So I think what Jesus is saying here is not that we should never judge, but that we should judge someone in a way that is not self-righteous or condemning. John Wesley, the founding father of the Methodist Church, says this of this text. He says, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. So in the words that follow here, Jesus is going to teach us, I think, how to judge others correctly. How to judge others in a way that is in accordance with the Trinitarian love of God. Listen to what he says, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So let me take a step back and add verses one and two together and try to resummarize what I think Jesus has said so far. If we don't take anything else into account, here's what he said so far. We'll put it on the screen. Judge others the way you want to be judged. Judge others the way you want to be judged. That's basically what he says in verses one and two. And if that's true, the question we must ask and answer is this. How do you want to be judged? I'll go first. I want to be judged not. I don't want to be judged at all. And this would be a great lesson, right? Judge others the way you want to be judged. And since no one here wants to be judged, don't judge anyone. Have a good day. That would be great. The problem is Jesus keeps talking. Keep reading. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? Now, the, the humor here doesn't quite translate for us, but most scholars think Jesus is trying to be intentionally funny. He's saying, why are you so concerned with a little speck of dust in someone's eye, but you have a log, a four by four post sticking out of your own eye? And Jesus goes, why do you do that? Well, the answer to that question is simple. Jesus, because it's more fun that way. It's more fun to point out someone else's problem than to have to deal with your own problem. But Jesus has strong words for you, and he has strong words for me and for his original audience. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite. Stop there. There's the word we talked about a few weeks ago if you've been here for the series. You mask wearer, you whitewash tomb, you actor, you hypocrite. Well, let's stop here for a second. Maybe this is the point. Maybe the point of this section in the Sermon on the Mount is just self-evaluation. Like, by noticing how terrible someone else is, it should cause you to examine your own life, to, to care for yourself, and then to judge not. But again, the problem is Jesus keeps talking. Look what he says. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and listen, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That word then is such an important word. Then you can judge clearly. Then you can judge your brother or sister. Do the hard work in your own life and then judge others. So again, in quick summary, let's take a step back. Let me try to summarize what Jesus has said thus far. Do the hard work of removing sin in your own life so that you can help your brother or your sister remove the sin from their life. 
Now, before Jesus moves on, he's going to make one final statement in verse 6. Scholar Jonathan Pennington calls verse 6 of chapter 7 the most difficult verse to understand in the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, most people, when they teach through the Sermon on the Mount, will tend to just skip right over verse 6. But I think it fits perfectly with what Jesus is actually saying here. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. That's weird lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Like, was this a problem in the first century? Jesus had to command this? People were tempted to, like, throw pearls before pigs? No, of course, it's not literal. Jesus isn't being literal here, but what does he mean? Well, it's a little confusing for us because we live in a culture that loves dogs. Dogs are commonly referred to as man's best friend. We feed them, we walk them, we pick up their poop in those little green bags. Some of you buy birthday cakes for them at those, like, silly little dog bakeries. It's, it's a weird world in relationship to Dogs. When we think of dogs and pigs, we tend to think of something like this. Put pictures on the screen. Give me an idea. I mean, that picture on the right, for heaven's sake, it is so cute. So this is what we imagine when we think of dogs and pigs. But Jesus' disciples wouldn't have thought of this. They would have thought of something that probably looked a little bit more like this. Does anyone in here have a dog that looks like that on the left? I would love it. Dogs were like mangy and gross, and they were viewed as scavengers, like vultures or rats are today. And they didn't just eat garbage, but dogs and pigs, they ate human flesh. Think of 2 Kings chapter 9, where dogs, a pack of dogs, eat the body of Jezebel. You can go read that story later on. So to be a dog is not good. And pearls in the scriptures were of great value. They were always associated with the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying here is don't throw something valuable before pigs or before dogs because they will not appreciate it. Now, growing up, I always heard this passage ripped out of context and twisted to mean something like this. Well, this obviously means not to waste your time sharing the gospel with people who don't want to hear it. Like, if they don't appreciate it, they're a lost cause, so don't waste the gospel on them. But that way of interpreting this passage has never made sense to me. And frankly, I don't think it's what Jesus is getting at. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this about the passage. He says, Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, which is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Willard says it has bugged him for years that when people get to this verse, they believe it's, about, it's talking about certain kinds of people who are so bad and so unworthy, we shouldn't even talk to them about the truth of the gospel. He says, if that's what Jesus is saying, then he is the biggest living contradiction you've ever seen because Jesus Christ did exactly what verse six looks like, what people are saying you shouldn't do. In Colossians 2, 3, we see that Jesus Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid. Jesus Christ was the greatest treasure of his father. He was offered to us. He was given to us and we turned upon him and we trampled him to the dust. Jesus spent his life proclaiming the gospel to unworthy people, people who ultimately trampled on this message of hope. So I I can't believe that that's what this means. Rather, here's what I believe Jesus is saying. He's saying judging others should be done in a loving, humble, self-aware way. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And when it is done well, when judging others is done well, it is extremely valuable. It is a treasure. It is a kingdom Thing And we should never cast that before those who are outside of the faith because they will never hear it. In other words, don't waste your time casting judgment on those outside of the church. It is a waste of time. Judgment, loving Christ-like judgment is like a pearl. It has great value and it shouldn't be just thrown before anyone. Now the question we have to ask as we ask every week when we get to the end of the text is, so what? 
what do, what do we do with this passage? Well, this idea of judging others within the church in a loving, humble, Christ-like way is, I believe, particularly important for the moment we find ourselves in right now in our culture. Here's what I mean. Right now, we live in a culture where there are two opposite but equally damning trends in the world. There are two equal but somehow opposite damning trends in society. On one hand, you have this trend that we've already hinted at today, which is this. Let's just live and let live. You do you, I'll do me. You don't judge me, I won't judge you. You make your decisions and I'll make my decisions and we'll just all get along. That's one very dominant trend in society. But on the other hand, there is this opposite damaging trend of cancel culture. This tendency to condemn people, to just write someone off entirely because of something they did or said, and it shows no grace and no patience and no humility. And more often than not, it is done with no hope of restoration or forgiveness. And let me be very, very clear. Both of these extremes reek of worldliness, and they are not the way of Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says, as citizens of this kingdom, as brothers and sisters in this faith family, we cannot let others continue in sin. And at the same time, we must confront the sin of others in a way that is different, that is tangibly different from the way the world confronts bad behavior, in a way that is gracious and kind and loving and self-aware. Now, I want to be honest about what this type of judgment looks like, particularly here at TCC, because a lot of you are new And I want you to know what you're getting into if this is your church family. So let me give you, with the rest of our time, let me give you some guiding principles on how to, I think, biblically and lovingly judge someone. Think of these as like the house rules of TCC, okay? Here are the house rules for how to judge someone here in our church. First, first thing to keep in mind, we have no right to judge those outside the church. Not, and I'm not saying this church, outside the church at large. In other words, we can't expect non-believers to behave like believers. This is very clear from my perspective in the scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. We'll put it on the screen. Paul writes, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, those outside of the family of God? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So what have I to do with judging outsiders? The answer is, Nothing, nothing. I have a dear friend who will remain nameless because I'm being recorded right now. And uh, she is not a follower of Jesus. And sometimes we'll talk and she'll tell me about life decisions, people she's dating, things that she is doing. And none of it resembles a godly life. None of of it resembles the way of Christianity. But I don't judge her. I tell her she's crazy sometimes. I tell her I think it's unwise. She probably shouldn't do some of this stuff. But I don't judge her. Because she's not a follower of Jesus. So why would I place my moral code onto her? It's just not necessary. This judgment is meant for insiders. This is a follower of Jesus thing. Second, judging someone is not the same as condemning someone. Judging someone is not the same as condemning someone. This is really important. I think one of the reasons we bristle when we hear this topic like judgment is because we misunderstand what judgment actually means. You see, when we think of judgment, we think of condemning someone as guilty, but that's not necessarily what Jesus is suggesting. And I don't think the New Testament is pointing to this. The word that Jesus uses here is this word. We'll put it on the screen. In the Greek, it's the word krino. It means to evaluate, to discern, to decide, to deliberate over something. It means that you look at someone or their life or situation, and with a discerning and helpful eye, as opposed to a hypercritical eye, you seek to help them navigate 
what they are doing. I love the way Kent Hughes describes it in his commentary. This is a long quote, but I think it's worth it. He says this, Christians have an obligation to exercise critical judgment. What Christ means when he says judge not is that we are to refrain from hypercritical condemning judgment. There is a universe of difference between being discerningly critical and hypercritical. A discerning spirit is constructive. A hypercritical spirit is destructive. The person with a destructive hypercritical spirit revels in criticism for its own sake. He expects to find fault, like the man who sat watching his preacher neighbor nail up a trellis in his backyard. The preacher, seeing him watch intently from his yard, asked, trying to pick up some pointers on carpentry? To which his neighbor replied, nope, just waiting to see what the preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. He continues, when a critic discovers faults in another, he feels a malignant satisfaction and always sees the worst possible motives in the other's actions. We all do this. The critical spirit is like the carry-on fly that buzzes with a sickening hum of satisfaction over sores, preferring corruption to health. Let us not be condemning in our judgment. Let us be discerning and wise and loving. Third, loving judgment begins in our own life. Loving judgment begins with us. This is what Jesus is getting at in the log analogy in the text we just looked at. Before you judge someone, you should evaluate your own, your own life to make sure you are not off. And this is really difficult to do because it's so much easier and honestly more enjoyable to just point out the sin in someone else's life rather than to point out the sin in your own life. But brothers and sisters, until we get to the point in our life where we hate our sin more than we hate the sin of other people around us, we will never be able to do this the way Jesus commands us. We have to check our own life before checking others. Fourth, loving judgment happens best in close relationship. Happens best in close relationship. I am not suggesting that it can only happen in close relationship. It can happen with people you barely know, but it happens best in close relationship. This is why we push community so much as a church. Because confronting someone when they are in sin is really difficult to do, and you better have enough love in that relationship to carry that truth. When I was a youth pastor, I used to train my volunteers that building a relationship with students in junior high or high school is the most important thing we do. Because we need to have a a bridge of relationship that is strong enough to carry the weight of truth. There is going to come a time when you have to speak truth into someone's life and you better hope that the relational bridge you have built with them is strong enough to carry the weight of that truth because if it's not, it will crumble and it will fracture the relationship. So when we confront someone, we should do it out of relationships so that they don't question our love for them, so that they don't question our motives, so that they know we are doing this because we want them to be more like Jesus. Fifth, we should invite loving judgment into our life. As a follower of Jesus, we should want others to speak into our life and to hold us accountable to Christ-like behavior. I've never understood the follower of Jesus who doesn't want to be held accountable for their sin. As a follower of Jesus, your goal in life should be to become like Christ every day. And in order to do that, sometimes we need people to call us out on the areas of our life where we are not like Christ. We should invite this into our life because when someone calls you out on your sin, it is an act of love on their behalf. Maybe I can explain it like this. This past Monday night after dinner, Katie and I took the girls for a walk and we walked down uh, to 
uh, the bridge in our neighborhood that goes over a little creek. And as we were walking to the creek, I'm just picking up rocks along the side of the road, and I'm putting them in my pocket so that when we get to the bridge, the girls can throw rocks in the creek. So we get to the bridge, and the bridge is a, a good 15 feet above the creek, especially this time of year. It's pretty low, and there's not a, a big barrier, so each girl could easily just kind of fall over. And now our eight-year-old, she can swim, so I don't really pay much attention to her. Like, it's just going to be a hard lesson to learn if she goes over the edge. But our three-year-old is still really cute, and she can't swim. But she thinks she's 13. So she's grabbing these rocks, and she's getting right up to the edge. So, so what do we do as her parents? We just kind of get behind her in a way that she doesn't know we're there, and we just grab the back of her shirt <laughs> to protect her because we love her. So she's right on the edge, but we know that if it gets too close, we can pull her back. We should want people in our life who are willing to sneak up behind us and just grab our shirt and go, hey, you're getting too close to the edge. Why you bring it back in? I don't think you realize how dangerous what you're doing is. We should want people to pull us back. There is a beauty to accountability that I think is lost on our culture, and we need to redeem it. In my community, there are guys like Tyler and Josh and Zach who better speak into my life. If they see my marriage failing, they better speak up. If they see me spending my money on something that is excessive and worldly, they better speak up. If they see me speak harshly to my kids, I want them to call me out on that. If you do not have people in your life who love you enough to call you out on your sin, then you need to surround yourself with some brothers and some sisters who will do so. That is why we push community here. If you're not connected to a community, please, please get involved in one. Sixth. When judging another person, always approach with gentleness, with gentleness and with restoration as the goal. In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul writes these words, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If the end goal of approaching someone in their sin is anything, is anything other than to see them restored as a faithful follower of Jesus, then you should probably not approach that person. You should take time, pray, sift, make sure you don't have any logs in your own eye, and then, and then you approach with love and humility and grace, with restoration as the goal. And let me tell you from experience, if you approach someone without these things as the goal, it never ends well. You can use all the right words, but if your heart is not right, it will not go well. It will only cause more pain and more division in that relationship. Imagine what it would look like if we actually embraced this. Imagine what it would look like if in this church family we embraced this spirit of loving judgment, not condemning judgment, but loving judgment so that we could hold on to each other and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, you're getting too close to the edge. And we spurred one another on into Christ-like behavior. This is the type of church I want to be a part of. The type of church that is constantly pushing one another to be more like Christ every day. In just a moment, Austin and the band are going to come back and lead us in worship. And as they do, we will take communion. If you're new to table community, we take communion every week as a church family. And as you prepare your minds and your hearts for the tables, I want you to reflect on this beautiful truth. In Matthew chapter 25, you can go read that later, and in Revelation chapter 20, God is described as a judge who sits on the great white throne of judgment. Now, we aren't exactly sure what this is going to look like or how it's going to work out, but I believe that one day we will have to stand before God the judge. And let me be very clear and not mince words here. This judgment will be a condemning type of judgment. 
It will be. But brothers and sisters, here is the profound, beautiful, and scandalous reality of the gospel. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. So that on that day when we stand before God, the judge, he will look at us and smile and he will welcome us into the kingdom that he has prepared for us before the foundations of the world. And the way he will be able to do that is because of Jesus and the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for us. That is why we take communion, to reflect on the sacrificial love of our God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the difficult passages. God, as I reflect and have reflected on this verse all week, I have been reminded of the times in my life where people who love me and care about me had to confront me when I was off. God, as difficult as it is in that moment to receive that feedback, I look back now with gratitude God, I pray for the men and the women in this room who do not have people around them that love them enough to call them out on their sin, that you would give them those people. I pray, God, for the men and women in this room that feel the need to confront a brother or sister about something that they have done recently, that you would help them to remove the the speck, the log out of their eye before they talk to the person about the speck in theirs. God, that you would give them courage and boldness to speak truth, God, that you would help all of us become more like your son, Jesus. God, we love you. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.